Hi ho, Kermit the Frog here, and welcome to Muppet Vision 3D. How did you get here? We entered a contest. Yeah, we lost. Yeah, good. Check, 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 up, check. Hi, I'm Dorothy. I'm Dinah. I'm Max. Yeah, Debbie was sick, so uh, the union sent me. Debbie was sick, so the union... <clears throat> And at no time will we be stooping to any cheap 3D tricks. Let's go under me flumey. Exactly. Mr. Mickey Mouse. Hello. Hi there. Welcome to my park. How you doing? Hello. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? You are not Mickey Mouse. You are a rat. Rat schmat. Besides, they're tourists. What do they know? Will you get out of here? Okay, but do I still get my ten bucks? Get out, get out, get out! I've got Donald Duck back here. Will you get out? Yes! And now, ladies and gentlemen, while you are a captive audience... W-D-W Radio, your information station. Hello and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 82 for the week of August 31st, 2008. I'm producing the show early this week, so there won't be any news or rumors, but I do have something for you that I think you're going to enjoy. Jim Henson's Muppet Vision 3D is a landmark attraction in Walt Disney World, not just for its groundbreaking technology, classic characters, and truly hysterical show script. It's an attraction that begins outside the show itself and carries over into arguably one of the very best cues anywhere in the Disney parks. But beyond that, It represents the work of its creator, Jim Henson, and serves as a reminder of the relatively recent marriage between the Disney and Henson companies, and a deal whose negotiations began more than a decade ago. This week, I'm pleased to welcome Jim Lewis and Craig Shaman, former staff writers for the Jim Henson Company, who were instrumental in the concept, design, and creation of Muppet Vision 3D. We'll discuss the creation of the attraction and so many of its priceless gags and jokes, as well as the Muppet attractions that never came to be, working with Jim Henson, and the future of Disney and the Muppets. It's a fun chat with two of the people that knew Jim Henson well and today continue to preserve his legacy. I'll end the show with a few of your voicemails, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. I'd like to introduce you to the guys who invented Muppet Vision. Ah, uh, this way, folks. The Muppets proudly present the final demonstration of Muppet Vision 3D. One of Walt Disney World's most enduring shows, as well as one of its most technologically impressive, is Jim Henson's Muppet Vision 3D at Disney's Hollywood Studios. And the combination of familiar faces like Kermit, Miss Piggy, Gonzo, and Fozzie coupled with a fun 3D film, entertaining pre-show, and a cue that is not to be missed, offer guests an experience that is enjoyed by kids and adults alike. And the show was the last project directed by Muppet creator, the legendary Jim Henson, and actually opened on the first anniversary of his untimely passing on May 16th, 1991. And the marriage of the Henson and the Disney families always just kind of made sense as they represent the greatest creative talents 
in family entertainment anywhere in the world, and Muppet Vision is a perfect example. And as part of its success is thanks to my next two guests. They are Jim Lewis and Craig Shaman. They are former creative writers at the Jim Henson Company and two of the incredible talents that helped bring Muppet Vision 3D to life. So it's my pleasure to welcome them both to the WDW Radio Show. I guess that's where we say thank you. <laughs> Jim and Craig... I, I, I don't have a script, so I don't know where to go. But yes, <laughs> welcome. Well, thank you very much uh, for, for joining me, both of you. I, this is really exciting for me because I am such a big fan of not just Muppet Vision and obviously Disney, but the Muppets in general. And maybe for those who may not be familiar with your work, could maybe each of you tell us a little bit about your background with the Muppets and Jim Henson? Maybe Jim, you go first, and then Craig. That's fair because I, I got there. I got there first. <laughs> but um, I I started in the early '80s doing a magazine that was uh, begun pretty much around the time that the, they were doing you know Muppets Take Manhattan. Uh, they started doing a magazine called Muppet uh, Magazine, and it was kind of a celebrity magazine, but this conceit was it was written totally in the voice of the characters. And so for a couple of years there, um, I was writing in the voice of the characters, not for video or television or any anything, but I, I became, I, I, I basically became like Sybil. I had all these voices inside my <laughs> head. And... Um, and it was a real great training ground for that. Um, you know, I of course grew up with uh, with Jim's work from Ed Sullivan on through Sesame, through through the Muppet Show. But um, it was that experience that brought me to the attention of of Jim Henson and uh, the company. And when they started doing um, home videos and other projects, and guys who had been writing the classic characters like Jerry Jewell were, you know, busy off doing other things, they needed people to to be able to write in the character voice. And that's how I, I got on board. And, and once I got there, um, uh, I wouldn't let go. And um, like Craig, um, I became sort of the go-to writer guy, um, writing everything from productions, TV, video, through consumer products, and in this case, uh, theme park, uh, being involved in theme park attractions. And somewhere along the line, I screamed, and, and they said, we need Craig. And that's, that's, that's his part. Go ahead, Craig. Well, uh, yeah, actually, I, I came in, um, I originally started as an intern at Henson in the summer of 87. And then I joined the company working initially in the relations department the next year in 88 and then um, while I was doing you know, while I was in PR I started to write uh, the some of the character interviews for magazines and newspapers and things like that and then when uh, I think it was uh, when Jim was going to be moving out to LA they knew that they were going to need someone to, to fill uh, his position in New York and they sort of had me work with Jim for uh, about a half a year uh, to sort of get trained up to to that point, and then when Jim went out to LA, I was his counterpart in New York. So I did the, had the same list of, of uh, projects from trading cards to to television and uh, doing the morning show interviews and appearances, and uh, you know, and, and 
you know, we, we worked together on a lot of stuff, and I think that that was the period when Muppet Vision was happening. That, that's when I was right. uh, working with Jim a lot in his lovely little office, which then became my office. Well, that actually brought me to my to my next question, which was, how did you guys go from being staff writers on such a variety of different projects for Muppets over to the Muppet Vision 3D project? Well, I, I think one of the things you have to understand about the, the company is it was begun by, you know, Jim and Jane and Frank and Jerry and Jerry. All those names have last names, but I'm not going to go into that. Um, <laughs> And it was a real small operation. Um, I, I think my, my, one of my favorite memories is when the, the project first got started, we'd have meetings with um, Disney Imagineering, and they would literally have 30 people in the room, and we'd have four, because we were a really small company. So uh, if you were part of the creative team at, at Henson, and uh, you, you, you were needed. <laughs> because you were needed at every point. It was a small operation, and the, the joy of that was you got involved on everything, and I think that's part of the reason that uh, both Craig and I were, were brought in, that our sensibilities were the Muppet sensibilities, and we were going to share them with the Disney people and sort of bring them up to speed so that what... Because obviously that production, you know, for all our efforts, would never have happened without... The you know the incredible work of the Imagineers. And I think specifically, um, a lot of what we were doing was uh, what Disney refers to lovingly as nomenclature. Yes. And uh, material that was being prepared for the pre-show and the queue and stuff that was you know was, Jim had such a great background in doing the Muppet Magazine stuff, so he was uh, really taking the lead on doing all the movie posters and all of the uh, the text jokes. And can I, can I say one thing, Lou, before we go on? Sure. Because I want to make sure we don't miss this. It is the greatest, to me, the greatest line ever written regarding a Muppet production, and it's Craig's. And there is a, um, in the queue line, there's a Tarzan poster. And um, I think it, the poster might be, uh, it, it's some Tarzan with Kermit as Tarzan. And Craig wrote this as the tagline: "She's Hollywood, he's Vine." <laughs> and and to me, there that I, I I still I my my mouth falls in agape when I see that line because it's so perfect, it's so it's so right to the image, and it's so deliciously stupid. There was only one other time in my life when when the the uh, humor serendipity lords looked down on me and. I, I was talking with a friend once, and he was saying, um, you know, this, this woman uh, was uh, married to the first bozo uh, before they split up. And I said, those must have been some pretty big shoes to fill. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So now you know where Pinocchio no. gets a lot of his material, okay? <laughs> But I, I mean, I, I disagree with you. I think that the queue of Muppet Vision, and, and we'll talk about this obviously at length, mm -hmm. is filled with just pure brilliance of, of lines like that. And I think, and I've said it a thousand times on the show, it is an attraction in and of itself. And I tell people, get there just as the doors close to the last show and spend as much time as you possibly can in the queue. Well, and the challenge, of course, was doing um, stuff... You know, there were some guidelines, as I recall, that Disney had for what they could or couldn't do. You know, stuff couldn't 
uh, it had to be able to be anchored down in a way, all the stuff in the pre-show area. Um, so it was it was kind of fun to sort of poke fun at, at what you could or couldn't do. Yeah, and and also the the fact that visually that it, it the the conceit was that it it was done by the Muppets. The whole production obviously is done by the Muppets. It's not somebody came in and and you know Kermit gave them the orders and they did it. It was it had to look like you know a bunch of rats and pigs and frogs and bears and penguins put this together and to try and get the the Disney people to you know making it messy just was against the basic credo of the way they did their attraction so making it making it look sloppy in the way that a rats would paint a uh, a scene or 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 create a piece you know try and get that but they did obviously uh, and they pulled it off but uh, it was an interesting melding of cultures in pulling that pulling that whole thing together well, how did it actually come to be? I mean, was this something where, you know, Henson comes to Disney and says, we have a great idea for an attraction. Disney comes to Henson and says, we want you to do, create a 3D show. How does sort of the, the genesis of the project get started? Um, I, it's my understanding, and I was brief, I was somewhat involved in, I mean, if you see the show, the, the it's, it's a concept with lots of gags. Um, but the idea, I think, Disney had the technology, the 3D technology. They really wanted to do a 3D movie, and, and and you sort of throw that as the given down on the table, and then everybody throws every other idea they can think of at it. And I think that, um, you know, what would the Muppets do? I mean, again, working from the psychodrama of reality, what would the Muppets do if suddenly they said, okay, we want you to make a 3D movie? Here's what they do. They would do every cheap 3D gag in the books, which is... You know, partly what the movie's about, and um, and they would, you know, they would also it would also fall apart chaotically and yet still be entertaining. So I guess it was the the only given that I recall was we have this 3D technology uh, and a lot of other effects that you know change it from you know the 1950s watching uh, you know Mo Howard poke his fingers at you. Um, it, the you know the old 50s 3d technology we've we've created this now what are you going to do with it what would the characters do with it and that's 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 kind of how it grew and you can kind of reverse engineer from what you see on the screen to that yeah and i don't know uh, who brought in the the in theater effects either i don't know if that came from imagineering but i know at one point we were changing a lot of the uh, the marketing material to muppet vision 4d because they yeah. wanted to really play up the, the idea that this was the, the first uh, 3D movie that they had done with in-theater effects. And I right. think it really laid the groundwork for a lot of the ones that came later. I mean, I shrunk the audience and, and the uh, Tough to be a Bug. Uh, yeah, the idea it, of having the special effects happen in the theater. Yeah, it did. And I, 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 I don't recall exactly, but I, I suspect those were... Those were tricks that Imagineering had up their sleeves, and they they couldn't figure out how to use them or how to integrate it in. And um, the great thing about Muppets is, um, you know, we they don't need logic to do it because if they've got it, they're going to use it. So um, 
Yeah, and so the fact that there's no reason to use it becomes the reason to use right, it. Right, exactly. The, yeah. If, if, you know, the sweet, we, can, we can make a cannonball seem to fly through the, through the theater over your head. Well, I mean, I, I think Craig would agree. The first word that comes to your mind is the Swedish chef with a cannon in the back of the theater. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in that show that, uh, you know, it, there's so much happening, sometimes the audience doesn't know exactly what they're supposed to look at. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's you know, true. it's really cool, so that's why people go back and see it over and over again. You know, the, the, sometimes people don't notice that there are arrows being fired into Statler and Waldorf's box. And, you know, there yeah, were some effects, I think, that weren't done in California Adventure just because they were so, there was so much happening. Right. And like I said, that's the brilliance of the attraction. That's why it has stood the test of time for 17, 18 years, whatever it's been, is because the repeatability factor is so high. We may... People like me, we know the script, we know the dialogue, we could recite it, but we enjoy it because there's so much. I know I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a big geek, but <laughs> I'm not the only one. Trust me. But you go back because there is so much to see. And when I tell somebody, hey, did you notice that that the soldiers aren't wearing pants? It gives them a reason to go back and look for something else. And that's just one of, like you said, thousands of the psych eggs that exist both inside and outside the attraction. Right. When you look at it, it's amazing how much is being done because there's the 3D movie itself. Plus, there's uh, there are lighting effects in the theater to create the destruction. There's the animatronic penguins in Statler and Waldorf and the Swedish chef. There's the, the pre-show and, you know, all of this stuff. And it's just and it, it's really in incredible. The and Sweden's the, the live performer aspect. Um, and I think that uh, this was originally intended to be part of an entire little Muppet mini theme park. And this was, uh, there was going to be a dark ride, there was going to be this movie, there were going to be two themed restaurants. Okay. And that was all in that little New York uh, sub area. If you go to Walt Disney World and you go to that area, you can see the Muppet Studios gate, and that whole area was to be Muppet Studios, who knows, you know. Now that the Muppets are part of the Disney family formally, uh, you know, who knows? Yeah, I remember actually seeing signs that coming soon, Muppet Studios, and this was in the early 90s, and then unfortunately when the the, the first, I guess, quote-unquote merger of the Disney's and, and Henson companies fell through in the 90s, uh, this was unfortunately lost. And like you said, one of the things that I was looking forward to was the Muppet movie ride and Gonzo, you know, the great Gonzo's Pandemonium Pizza Parlor, which from what I understand is where Mama Mel- Melrose's currently sits. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, I have a, um, a, a pizza restaurant script that if anybody out there is opening a pizza restaurant and needs a script, uh, let me know. Cause I think I've, the ownership has reverted to me, and you know, change a few names, and you could probably use it. Yeah, you may be giving me reason. The pizza places nowadays, there's there's never a good script behind them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how many people are saying, you know, I think I should open up a pizza place just to get a, a, just a copy get of that script? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and there was there was a lot more, and, and maybe we'll kind of talk about this after yeah. the attraction of what was supposed to come there, and what what eventually came and went away, and and. The, the issues with the merger. But let's go back to yeah. Muppet Vision. And as I said earlier, I think part of the, the brilliance of the entire Muppet experience is that it begins so far 
outside the show theater. Um, let's talk a little bit about the elements. And for one is the building itself, because there's so much great stuff even before you enter the show building. Everything that's just been, I guess, maybe the term is, is muppetized. Well, I think that the sort of the shell of the building itself was part of the, you know, that was already being designed for something or other. Um, I, I think we should mention Michael at this point. Oh, gosh, uh, yes. You know, uh, Michael Michael Fifth, who we both uh, worked with for many years, uh, he describes himself as sort of head of design of the Muppets. And he was really a point person for all of the visual uh, design work of the building, the interior, and he worked very closely with the Imagineers and uh, the sculptors. You know, the, per- the there was a great sculptor. I think uh, Cynthia Woody did the sculpts for the the, the uh, fountain outside and the, the piggy uh, pediments and stuff inside. Yeah, that's that's another thing. There, there's lots of architectural detail, like you said, um, throughout. I mean, a uh, uh, comedy tragedy masks featuring Fozzie and all of that is just to a level and you know Michael Michael envisioned it they brought it to life and even the most innocuous of objects whether it's an air duct or a rain gutter or uh, you know a false water spout everything was sort of given that that Muppet treatment Um, is that something that was that you guys knew right off the bat you were going to do or are these sort of things that um, as these elements melt uh, these practical elements are brought in, you just sort of, you know, say nothing is sacred and just sort of go to town on them? Well, everything was inspired. I mean, I I remember the backflow preventer. Ah, uh, yeah. Which is... <laughs> you remember that, Greg? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a sewer... It really is. It, it's a sewer, sewer pipe thing, and it was, as you walk through the line at Disney World, it's, uh, you know, the at the back of the queue, and and before you make the turn and head back towards the, the entrance to the theater. And it was just there. It was a it was a necessary part of preventing backflow in the in the restrooms. Um, kind of not a really sexy part of the park, but one one people, you know, would would imagine uh, would not imagine you could turn into something entertaining. And when we saw that, um, we remembered the uh, at the well, Jim Henson and Frank Oz used to go be, I guess, semi-regulars, Craig, on the Today was, Show. Uh, well, this was actually, they did it during an appearance on the Jack Parr Show. Jack Parr, okay. And uh, yeah. there was a dressing room that they were assigned. And, and, and there were pipes in, in the closet of that dressing room. And they painted the pipes and put eyes on them and, and basically turned it into a, into a work of art. And that was the inspiration for creating, you know, turning turning the backflow preventer into a uh, in, in, into a creature of sorts. So yeah, when sometimes you just see things like that that seem totally well, there's that's just mundane. And well, what can we do to that to to make it? I didn't expect to see that kind of moment. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I think too. A lot of casual guests, much of this is overlooked. And also, too, because I guess maybe the the popularity or there's so much more to do now mm-hmm. in the studios, right. a lot of people miss that section of the queue on the right-hand side of the building. Sure. Well, a lot of that's bypassed now. They just chain it off because people go straight in most of the time, and a lot of a lot of time of the year. What's, you mentioned that the, uh, the, the attraction's still going strong after 18 years. The pipes at NBC are actually still there. 
Yes. Um, they, they actually changed their renovation plan several times to keep Jim's pipes mm. in the closet. In, in the NBC building, that's And they're actually, they, they are now, it's in Max Weinberg's dressing room. No kidding. <laughs> well, it just, it goes to show, and we'll talk about this too later, the, the ultimate respect that people had for, for Jim and his work. So. Yes. And I think the other thing is that we wanted to actually, there were, there were plans, as I recall, to take it even farther. They, you know, we wanted to put eyes on the, the trash cans. We wanted to, there was a design to do um, faucets for the restrooms that look like Gonzo's nose. Right. And a lot of these things just sort of, we, we didn't have the, the time or the money to do. If, we, if they had done the whole um, Muppet Studios area, I think we were going to be revisiting that. Yeah, and unfortunately, still to this day, what people miss is one of my favorite parts of the entire attraction, and those are the movie posters and sort of some of the quote-unquote educational posters and blueprints. Uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about some of the posters and the inspiration, because I think you talk about, again, pure just gag gold. Um, I think they're brilliant. Well, I think part of the fun thing about the posters is that they were created uh, using entirely existing material. You know, right. they ha- we had to come up with these, uh, you know, these, these the posters were necessary to sort of cover this blank wall, but there was a limited budget. But uh, Henson, for several years, had done very elaborate calendars with the Muppets. So uh, we were able to take the images from these calendars and repurpose them to, to create these, uh, to create graphically with these movie posters. And, and some of those images were from you know m- movie images like the Tarzan one but some of the more and we just you'd look at you'd stare at these Craig and I spent many a day not asleep after lunch but <laughs> actually staring at these posters trying to figure out well what movie would that be from and what kind of copy would be on there and all towards the end of getting across the conceit that the 3D movie you're about to see is part of the great tradition of that has brought you these fantastic productions. Um, so yeah, it was. We didn't go out and shoot all those images. Those images existed, and and they had to be, uh, you know, hopefully turned into funny. Yeah, and and really, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and sometimes, and you'd also try and create the gen- more generic posters, like the the tuxedo rental for the penguins, to try and link it into the content of the movie. Uh, and of course, that was just you know existing material as well. Exactly. What I was going to say is you tie in not only to the attraction but to the whole concept of the studios, and really you covered every genre on genre. As there was Cleopatra, uh, Beach Blanket, Be- Beaker, Kermit the Amphibian, Dive Hard Two. Uh, a personal favorite of mine was Star Chores. So there, I mean, it's, there's so much to see, and it's one of these things where I tell people, you know, walk past the chains that they will, you know, cast members tell them what you're doing. And go down, and again, the uh, the you do it experiments and the um, the blueprints uh, as to like how to operate your three D glasses. Simple but hysterically funny. Well, that's well, I think the, uh, that's good. Go ahead, Craig. No, I was just going to say a lot of that. You know, Jim and I are both big fans of the the Disney theme park experience, and I think that you know we're we're so used to hearing a lot of those disclaimers over and over again. We wanted to sort of have fun with that. Yeah, and, and who's the natural one to do that in? It's Bunsen and Beaker. Also, because the whole 3D technology was allegedly created by Muppet Labs, it's a Muppet Labs, you know, work in progress, R&D. 
it felt natural to sort of start telling that story in the line that, you know, not only did they think create the the technology that brings you the three this three D, four D experience inside, but they are doing breakthroughs in Q line technology, you know, which is sadly overlooked by, you know, the Nobel people. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and that's sort of, when you look at it, um, you know, Disney, uh, a lot of people who are visiting the parks regard just the attraction as the experience, as the story. And I think that uh, it's important to think of the entire trip through the attraction as the story. So you try and sort of generally acclimate people into this world little by little, and you start with the posters then into the hallway, then into that pre-show area, with, and then you have the video. So you're gradually getting people warmed up. It's like an audience warm-up. So and then, of course, after the attraction, the after the actual entertainment and attraction, the most important part of that experience is the gift shop. Of <laughs> exactly. course, of course. And again, nothing left untouched by the Muppetization and the people who are fans of place, you know, movies like The Great Muppet Caper and Muppets Take Manhattan will right. recognize so many elements from there. And again, like you said, it's part of the entire experience. Yes. But you, you talked about the inside and I cannot stress highly enough to people to take in the queue from the second you walk through the turnstiles and, and the security mat and that whole area is the stuff of legends as well as the World Headquarters Directory there's so much in there. There's so much. I almost don't know where to start asking you, but maybe you, can, you could tell us about the process of how that came to be and how you guys collaborated and came up with all these different amazing sight gags. Well, I mean, a lot of it, it starts with just the, you know where the path had to go. You know, they said we need gags for this section, this section, this section. My one of my favorites is the the doors of the laboratories. Mm. Um, yes, yes. J- Jim was Jim is particularly brilliant uh, with wordplay, and I think the stuff like Department of Redundancy Department, <laughs> yes, are these you know little subtle things that it, we certainly enjoy them. I don't know if anybody else does. No, it's it's they're there. I often, if when I do go to the attraction, I walk through there and stop and stare at the door and, and laugh, hoping other people will stop and do the same. Um, unfortunately, I can only go three, four times a week to the attraction in order to create that that you know the situation. But it, you know, I do my best. Um, but no, and I think that that you know it, it is it is you know um, you're sort of given this blank slate, and then you think what well what what would the Muppets? I mean, I think Craig and I both see it through their eyes, and 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 then you know who would. Who would have their hands on this, and what would they do with it? Well, and sometimes um, it's um, dictated by, you know, sad to say, but sometimes it's dictated by budgetary uh, things. So when you're doing that big pre-show area and you're getting all of this, you know, prop stuff, some of it came from the old the Henson warehouse, some of the, the props and things that were being strung up um, up in the air. And then they said, well, we have some room over here, but we only have enough money to do something in 2D. You know, we couldn't build anything. It has to be, you know, painted things. So then it's like 2D, 2D. What would the Muppets do in 2D? And then, oh, 2D fruities. Right. <laughs> so we had these, you know, cardboard pieces of fruit. With, you know, and, these are And the I do believe, fruit. if it's still there, I, I believe, Craig, it might be you, but I think it was Michael 
Fritz, who came up with the Annette full of Jello. Yeah, we we don't remember who did, but um, it still hangs there, and it's there's no mention of it. There's no sign. It's just a net with bricks of, of saggy gelatin inside of it. And yeah, hangs because up there. yellow is a trademark, of course, and you couldn't yeah. say that. But if you think about it, <laughs> it's a net full it's of jello, and why else? What? Why wouldn't you have a net full of jello at Disney yeah. Park? And that's why it works so well because you've taken static, inanimate objects and props and and simple plywood cutouts and added such a great element to it. And th- again, there's references to famous people, to famous music. Uh, one of the things I love is the Wima Wade they go on the mm-hmm. um, on one of the crates. You have references to classic Muppet characters and, and props. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, there's also a uh, an image or a photo of what I, I assume is, is purported to be a Jim Henson Muppet? Yes. Yeah. Uh, there, there is a, a Jim Henson Muppet that was done for a little country trio, originally done in the uh, early 70s. And that picture is used periodically, and I think that it's hanging in there. You'll also I recognize it. Yeah, there's the Swine Trek ship, and again, as a fan of, of the Muppet Show, you remember. And you'll also find elements too, like you said, sort of leading up to the show. You'll find some of the soldiers, and you'll find some of the things that you'll see later on in the movie itself. And uh, Jim, did, did you write the pre-show video? Uh, no, that, okay. that's more Bill Prady than anybody. Bill, yeah. who is, uh, was a writer before either of us. But again, um, one of the things that was interesting about that pre-show video is that, you know, it was another budgetary thing. We wanted to do, you know, they they needed the video to sort of introduce and give people the, the safety spiel. But they wanted to do something a little bit more interesting than just have, uh, you know, just a video running. So they did the three screens. And that and plane was, with playing with the technology yeah well you know it 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 wasn't that difficult pulling it off so seamlessly the way they did was difficult but it was the kind of thing jim henson loved to do but it was sort Um, of like low-tech complex puppetry stuff as opposed to digital things and i i recall going in there and people thinking that was the 3d movie I yes, was going to say there it, three screens, three, there's three screens, right? And it stands on its own. It totally stands on its own as a hysterical show. And you should know that that was not the original pre-show. That there was, if Craig, if I, I, mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken, uh, Jim shot a um, a Rolf the dog at the piano singing old Calmer and Ruby novelty songs. Uh, you know. Uh, 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 I never heard an onion, so why should right, it make me right. cry? And <laughs> with a couple of chickens, that is just brilliant. That is a brilliant piece. That is, I don't know how long. Well, I think um, they ended up using it for the pre-show of uh, Here Come the Muppets. I think. Right, right. And that was that was a lot of fun. So. But I think that one of the reasons that they had to do it, they had to do something with Kodak in it. Right, right. Uh, they were the original sponsor, so they needed a new pre-show that, exactly. that they could do with Kodak. Yeah, you forget that that really is just a queuing area, and it's just a place, sort of a, a holding pen to make you wait, because you are so entertained. And between the 3Ds and the Rizzo the Rat section and the Penguins, it, it is, it is again, pure comic gold in and of itself. And it's, you know, I remember, uh, you know, it was shot, the, the pre-show stuff was shot in the little 
uh, Henson studio they had in New York. And it just, you know, it was one wall of, of uh, background and then just the three video cameras set up and framed, right, so the characters could go from one to the other. And it's just, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy the pre-show video. I always try and, and watch it whenever I get there. And, and like I said, it's it's one of the things I tell people that, that they need to catch from beginning to end because there's so many great elements of it. But once you do get into the show, uh, which really was the third 3D film in Walt Disney World after Magic Journeys in 1982 and Captain EO in 86, but it took it to a whole another level of complexity, and not just in the 3D slash 4D technology and the use of, of CGI with, with Waldo, but now there were animatronics and there was the live action character as well. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the process. Well, of- and, and the, uh, the uh, Waldo C graphic. Um, right, you're talking about the CGI. Yeah. yeah. He that was, was really the, one of, if not the first, one of the first um, you know, CG characters out there. Um, and, and probably the first um, that was puppeteered. Is that pretty accurate, Craig? Yeah, I think it is. And then uh, Henson has since developed that technology and fine-tuned it, and now they're doing full shows with, with right. these digitally uh, performable, you know... Uh, Where it's not animated. It's, it's animation, but it's not animated in the traditional, even a traditional, you know, yes, PSR CG way, but literally a performer is with his hand in a, a special uh, mitt... Like a like a puppeteering mitt is performing the character you see on the screen, and the performer can see what he's doing, a rough version of it in real time, and respond to it. So, so that puppet could actually interact with Waldo on the screen, uh, both of the performers performing at the same time. Uh, and I think that one of the reasons that they were really high on doing that is. Uh, they're actually, the puppets are, I remember hearing this explained by one of the Imagineering people, that puppets are very difficult to do in 3D because they are connected to the bottom of the frame. And you need sort of, it's hard to get that sort of isolated perspective on them in 3D because they're attached to the bottom of the frame. So that's why you see a lot of times in the 3D movie, the, the characters will be situations where they have to lean out of the the frame, right? Because that's how they can get the the uh, the dimensional effect, and that's why you see when you see things like Sweetums, he's in black, standing in the middle, so you because can you actually can they can adjust the the perspective there. And one of the things that that uh, Waldo was able to do is to give you this flying thing that you can really do in 3D, and it's amazing the stuff they do. I mean, I still don't know how they do the thing where Waldo says everybody thinks I'm looking at them, but I'm really looking at you. And wherever you sit in that theater, he is looking at you. Right. It, it's magic. How do you do that, Jim? <laughs> no idea. Like I said, it, it's... I just assumed I got lucky and I was sitting <laughs> that he was actually looking at. Uh, I, I don't know. I assumed that. So both the character and the technology were developed by Henson? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, and Henson was in partnership with a company which was then called PDI, Pacific Data Images. Mm-hmm. And they went on to do uh, some animated features later on. And has Waldo ever ever resurfaced anywhere else? I know he was he was originally introduced, I think, uh, on another show with Jim Henson, and then he was brought to, to Muppet Vision, but have we ever seen him again anywhere else? 
The Jim Henson Hour, yes. Yeah, was um, part of that. I don't think he's really been used since. At that time, he was, uh, dare I say, a very expensive feature of the Jim Henson Hour, and not yeah. just expense-wise, but it was a time thing more than the expense because to do like 40 seconds of Waldo in an episode of Jim Henson Hour, it took like weeks of rendering. Yeah, so and that, again, admittedly, this is 20 this years ago. ago. Yeah. This is before Toy Story. This is before, you know, that, you know, everybody knows the, just in the last 10, 15 years what a, what a your, learning your, uh, curve. Your, your iPhone probably has more rendering capability <laughs> than the computer. Yeah, computer. it's just, it, it was, what it was at the time was uh, pretty amazing. And, you know, I, I uh, he hasn't, he hasn't resurfaced, but, um, you know, and I haven't, I I've got his email, but I never hear back from him. <laughs> now, in, in coming up with the, the concept and the story for the film, is this something that was really more of a collaborative effort, or did each of you have different elements of the show, whether it be the animatronics or the 3D or the story that each of you worked on? Well, most uh, of what I worked on was just the, the uh, pre-show and nomenclature stuff. Yeah, and, and, and same here. I think, you know, again, um, I would invoke the name of Bill Prady, uh, long may he be praised. He 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 was very involved as as the writer on it, uh, but like a lot of Muppet stuff, not taking away from what he did, um, a very collaborative effort with Jim and and Michael Frith and and you know everybody. And the workshop, there too, you know, then. if you look at the yeah. the uh, soldiers and the small world characters yeah. that the workshop did, it was incredible. Disney was actually very um, amenable to the whole idea of making fun of small world. I think right. they actually loaned our workshop some of the molds of the, the head so they could uh, make the puppets. So yeah, that that's it was a it was a very collaborative effort, but uh, it was I would say more than anyone it was Bill's um, it, it was Bill who shaped it into what you see up on the screen, with, with of course you know with 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 Jim Moore, the the ultimate shaper. Yeah, and uh, you know as Jim mentioned earlier, it's really. You know, it's a string of excuses to do a lot of cool, funny, silly things with the, you know... The, Which the I little... think is a great way to describe yeah. Craig and Mai's career. <laughs> that's what we do, you know, and yeah. you know, there's a, a thread of a through line, and that's that's usually enough. That's all. Without resorting to any cheap 3D tricks, of course. Never. Right. Yeah, never, no. Yeah. Now, we talked, obviously, about how Muppet Studios never came to be, but there were a couple of other relatively short-lived... Muppet shows in Walt Disney World, one of which was Here Come the Muppets. There was also Muppets on Location, Days of Swine and Roses, and there was also the Muppets at Walt Disney World TV special that aired, um, unfortunately, just a few days before Jim Henson passed away. Did either of you have any um, input or, or collaborate at all on any of those projects? Well, I'd see. I, I think that uh, I did some of the, the, again, nomenclature and cue stuff for Here Come the Muppets. And I think Jim, you wrote. Uh, I wrote uh, the Days of Swine and Roses, Roses, which was you know lots of fun because it was an outdoor show, uh, um, and so you sort of had to figure out a way to get the characters out there, have Piggy arrive, and 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 give good sight lines. I mean, we had Kermit up on a crane, and and uh, we got to use that great song from Caper, Hey a Movie. Yeah. And the whole idea being that you're going to get to see the Muppets. And then there was the, the intermission for autographing. 
the of course the the traditional information right. for autographing. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that was that was lots of fun, and and also, I mean, you know, to me, there has always been something a little scarifying about giant Muppets, the walkarounds. It works for Mickey and mm-hmm. and the and the Disney characters because their purest form is 2D animation. But because the Muppets are 3D and exist in our world, when you see them on, it always seemed a little bit. That, because it was a show, and also here come the Muppets, because it was a show up on a stage or in a in a in a theatrical way. You kind of bought that that was those were the real Muppets. Whereas when you see a giant pig walking towards you, who's yeah. larger than you, and it's really tough because they, they were really wrestling a lot with the scale issues. Yeah. Um, oh, you know, they the did a magnificent have, job. Don't yeah. don't not to undercut yeah, that. Yeah, and they they do a great job, but there's certain. Um, anatomical problems Mm -hmm. that present themselves because you know the Muppets don't you know they have uh, a head that's only you know the head and neck size of a human and their comparison to a a Muppet are a little different so the problem is how do you get a human neck into that Muppet shape and that's you know that's something that's always been uh, problematic but Disney really did uh, do a, a good job of overcoming a lot of that I was saying, it, it, the show absolutely worked, and I remember seeing it as a kid. But you're right when you talk about the scale and proportion of Kermit as we as kids are used to seeing him. The first yeah. time you see him on his two feet, you know, that aren't these tiny little sticks like in the Muppet movie, it, it's very, very different. It's a very yeah, different experience. They did a, uh, Henson did a touring uh, Muppet show, yes, arena series back in in the uh, mid '80s, or you know, shortly after the Muppet show finished its run. And again, when you see it on the big arena stage, it's a lot more forgiving. Yeah. I mean, and there still are, as, as everyone I'm sure knows, Sesame Street touring shows with walk-around characters doing it. And you do. You buy into it. You just, you know, it's, it's the illusion of theater that allows you to get away with it. It's, uh, you know, and I do know that the Miss Piggy walk-around was drafted by three NFL teams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the Henson shop for many years after that was experimenting with something called a smart head, uh, which was actually going to give these uh, these characters more expressive m- movements instead of having a simple yeah instead of having a simple Kermit mouth that would open and close with a they used sort of like a bicycle handbrake at that time in the performer's hand and that would open and close the character's mouth they actually put five servo motors in Kermit's head and they were all attached to this you know pack on the the performer's back and the way that it all looked it made it look more like Kermit because he sloped over a little bit Um, of course it was hard on the performer but and the idea was that uh, a puppeteer could perform the character remotely and record that performance to a track that could be played back it, it was the difficulty of finding a zero gravity environment in which yeah. the performer could stand up. <laughs> yeah, or having um, shows. But I understand they're still working on it. Thirty seconds, yeah. Right, unlike a, a bear in the big blue house, where the proportions are, you know, yeah. full human size, and it makes sense. Yeah, and because that character is designed from the beginning with the right. expectation of putting a person inside of it. Right, and, and maybe. You know, and, that's a little different than taking these puppet characters and then trying to figure out afterwards how to put a person inside. Right, and, and I was going to say maybe the the mention of bear um, 
is a good place to sort of transition to talking about the marriage of the, the, the Henson and Disney families because 15 years after that first deal was announced, the rights to the Muppets and characters like Bears uh, went over to the Walt Disney Company. And how did you guys feel as somebody, people who worked with and for uh, Jim Henson for so long? And how do you feel now maybe about this marriage between the two families? Well, I, I don't know. I think in, in some ways, I think it's where Jim had sort of seen the Muppets going because uh, he started it originally. But uh, I, I yeah, don't I know. Think, I think it's, it's, it's still taking time for them to sort of settle in. Yeah, and, and I, think that's, I think that's where I go with, with what Craig said is, is that Jim was as big a fan of Lou as you are of Walt Disney and what he did, so was Jim. And Jim knew that if anybody could keep these characters growing and alive and, 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 and real for the world, um, it was the Disney, it was Disney, which is why he started on that process. And I can honestly say that all through everything that went on um, on the business side, the creative side never really, there was never any any, any of that. There was ne- never any uh, antagonism. It was always just incredible respect, incredible joy of, of being able to bring these things to life. It, it, it always, uh, you know, that, that, that remained, that was true all through the process and, and remains true today. So, yeah, you mentioned uh, Muppets at Walt Disney World before, and I remember uh, going down to, to Florida for that shoot. I was assigned to go down and write all the publicity materials. Uh, and to see Jim walking around Disney World was amazing because it was, you know, he would attract people just following him wherever he went. You know, I, I saw him, you know, go off, you know, take a break from shooting to go uh, to the bathroom, and he was just running into the Grand Floridian, and people would just follow him. <laughs> and it, it was like, ah. it, it was the closest thing to imagining what seeing Walt Disney at Disney World would, would, yeah. would must have been like, because there, there we'd get these enormous crowds standing and, and watching uh, the Muppets perform, and you know, it was like this incredible bonus they got for the price of admission, and they would just sort of forget about going to see the attraction. They would just stand and, and watch for hours. Right. And Jim really loved the parks. He had he was buying a house down there, and the plan was to do a lot of, of production in Florida. And that's the thing is that is that Jim Henson has always been revered, you know, both personally and, and professionally for, for his work and his creative vision. And many people also mention his name in the same vein as someone like a Walt Disney, not just because of what they did, but because of what they represent and the legacy of what they both left us. And and maybe I guess for you guys who worked for the company after he passed away and, and what you're seeing now, uh, how do you feel about you know the ability to keep his legacy alive and, and his vision alive, and, and especially when that falls on shoulders like yours? This job is too hard. <laughs> uh, um, no, it's very difficult. It's it's you know the the one thing Jim did, and I think you see it. You don't have to have known Jim or really understand the process. You just have to watch Kermit with the other Muppets. And what thing Kermit does is give them enough rope. He he believes in them and sends them off and says great guys you go off and do it and that was Jim's attitude towards work he would he surrounded himself by with like-minded people and set them off and gave them believed in them and had confidence in them and so 
yeah, yeah. You always knew he was there to oversee what you were doing and and to make sure he didn't mess up too much. Just the way, you know, Gonzo and Fozzie and all those guys know that Kermit has got their back. So when Jim, when there was suddenly that emptiness, it it has taken a long, it's it's a long hard time to um, to, to to fill. You, you can't ever fill it. You just it becomes something else. And you know, I think Disney went through the same thing when Walt died. Um, you know, it 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 was. You can't just keep repeating the past. You have to keep moving forward. But how do you do that in a way that, you know, without without the the guy who figured it out all to begin with, um, you know, who made it happen? How do you, how do you keep that magic going? And it, it's it's a day it's a day by day kind of thing. I am uh, I serve as, as vice president uh, for the Jim Henson Legacy, which is a nonprofit organization devoted to doing just that to try and, and preserve Jim's uh, individual reputation as an artist, as a as a creator. And you know, we we feel that you know Jim always created these characters in these worlds to continue to live on forever, and we just want people to you know to remember that this came from this one man and that there was a very positive philosophy behind what Jim was doing. And uh, I think it, it's, the people can still benefit from, from seeing what he was doing and why he was doing it. All right. Yeah, and like I said, for me personally, Muppets were so much a part of my childhood, starting off with Sesame Street and then looking forward to seeing the Muppet Show at night in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. and. I think hopefully what we might be seeing today is a, a resurgence or maybe bringing these classic Muppets to a new generation of kids, whether it be re-releasing the original Muppet shows uh, on DVD. I know season three just came out. Uh, there's talk about Fraggle Rock, again, something that, that's just timeless. What do you see, or, or, or if you had maybe um, your wishes about moving forward together with the company what the future might hold. Do you think we might see more Muppets coming to, whether it be TV or movies or even the theme parks? Well, I know you will be seeing more Muppets coming to, to TV. Um, mm -hmm. Nothing that we can specifically talk about, but uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, to me, and I, I'm not an employee of, of uh, not a full-time employee of the Disney company, I think it comes down to how much they want it to happen. And part of it is that, when, you know, if you want the Muppets to really come back big time, they need to spend a significant amount of money. Um, and, and actually... Prefer preferably on Craig and I. Yes, on us. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean... We'll have a few dollars left over for production, but... Yeah, if um, necessary. But I think that... Uh, you know, it, it's very important to keep the characters alive and, and to keep them out there. But I think that the, the one concern I have is that we need to really remember who the characters are. That's forgotten. Uh, or, or you run the risk of the Muppets turning into what the characters were. Mouse on a logo, but you really don't know who he is. Yeah, it's it, it is it's that they are living, breathing, and that they exist in our world, which is a is a, a real treat that CG and animation can't can't do. And um, 
I think Craig and I have always agreed that, that the more we can tap into that, yeah. that place them in our world, but let them be true always, always to themselves. Um, and, that, and that's, that's something that, that has the potential to live forever. Um, yeah, and I think it's important. I'd love to see the Muppets do more stuff in our world. I think, um, yeah. you know, Muppet Christmas Carol, Muppet Treasure Island, and, and Wizard of Oz, they are very good for what they are. But the uh, yeah. one uh, thing that they did was we saw the Muppets playing these other characters over and over again. So the audiences don't really get to know our characters as themselves. So I would love to see some more programming where they're just themselves so we can you know, reestablish that, that uh, relationship. And that's why the Muppet movie is still just such a classic and one that I still enjoy watching. And I'm happy that I'm able to now start introducing my kids to. Um, and that's really what I'm excited about. And I know when you guys said that maybe come back to TV, I and, and I know everybody else that's listening is excited not just for ourselves, but for now our, our children that we can introduce the Muppets to the children and get that same experience that we had. Well, I have the, uh, the pleasure of hosting a lot of screenings for the Jim Henson legacy. And I just got back from doing one in Detroit and doing one in Washington. And I'm going um, in about a week to Australia to do a bunch of uh, screenings. And what's really thrilling about doing those things is that you see the audiences, our parents bringing their kids to, to share this stuff for the, for the first time. And you hear them talk about how, oh gee, I can't believe I've never seen that before, talking about the Muppet movie. And that's really, you know, that's thrilling that they're able to experience it. One of the sort of sad things about where we are with entertainment now is that every single age group has its own entertainment. And there's, there are a few things that entire families can really enjoy equally. And the Muppets has always been one of those things. And, um, you know, I think I'd like to see more of that. Yeah, always it's, you know... You got to be stupid enough for the parents and smart enough for the kids, <laughs> and we don't have a problem and, being stupid enough. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the hard part is the smart, but uh, yeah, that's um, you know that's the, yeah I, I agree. And as a parent too, I, I just I feel the same. I have kids, and 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 it is it's a treat to be able to watch something and not 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 worry. Uh oh, or that not, what what they're watching is so geared towards. You know, a an eight year old that I can't, you know, my teeth hurt. Right. So, so fun finding that mix. Right, and and again, that's why there's so much overlap between people who are Disney fans and people who are Muppet fans because, yeah. as Jim Henson and Walt Disney wanted, it were th- there are things that we can forever enjoy together as a family uh, on every level. I, I want to thank you both for being on the show, and more specifically for all of your efforts uh, through the years and bringing so much joy and so much happiness to Muppet and Disney fans uh, around the world for so many years. So, Jim Lewis and Craig Shaman, thank you so, so much for everything that you guys have done. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Special thanks to Jim Lewis and Craig Shaman 
For more on the Muppets, you can, of course, go and visit Muppets.com, as well as Craig's work over at JimHensonLegacy.org. And speaking of Muppets, I recommend you also go and check out Steve Swanson's MuppetCast. That's a podcast that you can find on iTunes and over at MuppetCast.com. I was actually a guest of Steve's on his August 24th show in his profile of a podcaster series. But don't go to listen to me. Go to listen to Steve talk about all things Muppets each and every week. Again, that's MuppetCast.com. To read our show notes, you can go and visit WDWRadio.com. There you'll find a link not just to this week's show, but all of our past episodes in case you want to catch up on anything you may have missed. There you'll also find a link to our forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. There you can go and register for free and talk with other Disney fans about not just what you heard on the show, but anything Walt Disney World or Disney related. We have almost 30,000 registered members. Again, it's a very fun, very welcoming community. I invite you to come on over and check that out. And if you haven't subscribed to the new Celebrations magazine as yet, head on over to CelebrationsPress.com. There you can take advantage of our special pre-publication offer. You can save 30% off the cover price, get six issues for only $24.99. It's a new print magazine that I've been working on with Tim Foster from GuideToTheMagic.com, as well as so many people that you know, including other authors, webmasters, and so many other people from the online community. Our first issue is coming soon, and it's going to include everything from news and articles and trivia, photos, games, history, reviews, and so much more. Again, you can go and visit CelebrationsPress.com to find out more. Also, I mentioned on last week's show, for a limited time, I'm offering a free download of a 10-minute sample clip of my first audio guide to Walt Disney World. That's Main Street USA. Some of you emailed me asking me exactly what the guide was like, what they could expect by hearing it. So I thought I'd give you a 10-minute clip right off the first CD. You can find a link to the download either at WDWRadio.com or at the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Both Main Street USA and the Adventureland Audio Guides are available on CD for just $9.99 or as an instantly downloadable MP3 file for just $7.99. The downloads are available exclusively at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. There you can also get signed copies of my Walt Disney World Trivia books and the new 2009 Page a Day calendar. Voting for round two of the Adventureland Challenge Contest is now over. I want to thank everybody who participated and came back and voted so often. Be sure and come by and visit WDWRadio.com. There I will post the names of the three contestants that are moving on to the third and final round, one of whom is going to win the VIP vacation for four to Walt Disney World. Each of those contestants is going to appear on an upcoming episode of the show, so stay tuned because once again, you'll have a chance to vote and decide who you think is the ultimate adventurer and should win the ultimate grand prize package. Again, thanks to everybody who played. Thanks to everybody who voted. Stay tuned to the show and keep checking back on the site. Find out how you can help make somebody's dream come true by making them the ultimate adventurer. Other sites I wanted to recommend that you check out include Orlando Attractions Magazine. That covers all of the Orlando area theme parks, attractions, restaurants, and so much more. That's by Ricky Briganti. For an annual subscription or for back issues, you can go and check out attractionsmagazine.com. There's also some specials still going on in our show notes. You can go to wdwradio.com. You can save $50 off your owner's locker. You can also get a free rental car and $50 gas card with your seven-night stay at a three-, four-, or five-star vacation home from our friends at All-Star Vacation Homes. Lots of exciting things planned for upcoming shows, including more of your emails. But if you have a question you want answered, a suggestion, a comment, anything at all you'd like to share, you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com. 
or call the voicemail anytime, be on the air with your questions, comments, or just say hi from the parks. That number is 206-202-4939. That's 206-202-4WDW. As I said, if you want to comment on anything you heard about the show or you want to share anything with other listeners, you can visit the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. And as always, if you like the show, please help spread the word. Tell your friends. Let others know about it. Review us in iTunes. Come say hi on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you again so much for tuning in again. See ya. Hey, Lou. This is Jeff Oldham from St. Augustine, Florida. Magic Believer in the forums. And I just wanted to comment on the uh, most recent podcast that we listened to, the one with the interview with Richard Sherman. My wife and I enjoyed that thoroughly as we uh, were traveling and um, it just very insightful and uh, made us think about the the music of Disney in a whole new light, especially after hearing some of the stories that that he shared. The the other thing that we, uh, I wanted to share with you was, um, when when uh, my wife and I listen to your podcast, um, and especially some of the DSIs and some of the other uh, on-scene tidbits, um, we frequently look at each other and say, oh, it looks like we need to go take a, a research trip this weekend. And so uh, we'll get up on a, early on a Saturday morning and uh, head down to Disney for the day, spend the day, and then uh, turn around and come back and be home by midnight. And uh makes makes for very thoroughly enjoyable trips for us as we uh, discover Disney in a whole different way. So we just wanted to thank you for uh, all of your insights and and all the hard work that you do. Thanks. See ya. Hi, Lou. It's Amy from Indiana. Wanted to say in regards to the Jungle Trek slash Night Kingdom uh, rumor that I think that's actually something that my family Um, even though the sticker price is giving me a little bit of sticker shock, uh, would in fact do. We have two boys that are Indiana Jones, Star Wars fanatics, and they always love, you know, a sense of adventure, Pirates of the Caribbean being another of their favorites. And whenever we go to Disney World, the options for boys especially are few and far between. You have the Pirates Cruises and, you know, Captain Jack's tutorial and Star Wars and stuff, but you don't have um, everyday kind of events like uh, the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique or, you know, princess dinners and stuff that the girls tend to have. And while I don't think that girls are excluded, excluded from loving pirates or things like that, but it, it does tend to be more for boys. And I think the Jungle Trek is something that would appeal to us if and when they build it, I would definitely put back my pennies uh, to take our kids. Um, I think it's an interesting and intriguing idea. I I would love to see what Disney uh, would do with something like this, uh, given their past uh, track record with all the parks. Um, Lord knows that they could uh, definitely do some Imagineering uh, wonderful things with it. So that's my two cents. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Lou, it is Paul from Texas. Uh, We just got back from our trip a few weeks ago and wanted to give you a couple of rumors we heard while we were down there. First off, we uh, heard a rumor from one of the bus drivers there that uh, after the Year of a Million Dreams was over, the castle suite would begin uh, 
being opened up to be a rental room, uh, but it would be a pretty hefty price tag starting about $10,000 a night, according to that person. Uh, second off, uh, there was some talk I know a few months ago about the fingerprint readers at the parks. Uh, well, we did all four parks while we were there. It seemed like only Epcot and Disney Quest, uh, they still had it active where you needed to do the fingerprint. So the other parks, it seemed just the ticket admission was all you needed. Uh, and then lastly, uh, we did notice something. Uh, we did the dining plan this trip and noticed that uh, for a lot of them, now that since they, they took out the appetizer, uh, some of the restaurants, specifically Le Cellier, but we saw a few others there in Epcot as well, uh, they went ahead with the menu and they were taking selections from the appetizers, certain entrees, and certain desserts and putting them in as a, as a kind of a, a chef's package meal uh, that would only count for one table service credit, but you would still get an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert. It was just kind of a slimmed-down menu. Uh, but I uh, wanted to pass those along. Enjoy the show. Keep up the great work, and we'll talk to you later. Hey, Lou. This is Max from Germany speaking. Um, I just listened to your episode number 75 for July 13th, I think. Um, at the In the um, listeners' questions, one of your listeners um asked you um, at what time the the fire off um, after Illuminations at World Showcase was and at what time they could um, watch it. Um, since I was a cast member for um, the past year at the German Pavilion, I remember spending my uh, breaks outside in the, in the back of the pavilion. And as far as I remember, the, um, the, the burn-off of the Illumination fireworks was at uh, around 20 past 10 p.m. I'm, I'm not sure on this. But um, as far as I can remember, it was always around that time. Um, I love your show. I've been a listener since um, Mouse Tunes. Keep up the very, very good work. And well, you're kind of bringing the home of my past year back to me here. Now, you really want to make me go back, although I thought I was sick of it, but I'm definitely not. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Max, bye. Hey, Lou. This is Jeff Oldham. Uh, we're down at uh, Disney World right now, sitting in the parking lot of Pop Century. We had a Good morning at the uh, Hollywood Studios and played around at the uh, Winter Summerland Miniature Golf Course on the uh, summer side. Had an enjoyable experience there. While we were coming into Pop Century, we asked the uh, guard at the uh, gate about the uh, classic years. And he said that there, in fact, the vehicle that was just in front of us were cast members that needed access to that side of the park. And and he said that they were beginning the refurbishment of that side of the park to get it ready for doing the construction and getting it back in, on track. He said probably another couple years before it would be officially open, but, but they are starting. And uh, enjoy your show and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Hi, Lou. It's Catherine. Um I hope all is well in New Jersey. I'm off to Florida for my Disney World College program. I just wanted to tell you that your show kept me sane during these four months of waiting. So um, um, I had an awesome time seeing you at the meet, and um, talk to you soon. Keep up the awesome, awesome, magical work. Bye. Will you stop this foolishness? What foolishness would you like to see? Will you get out of here? Yes. (sighs) Well, what do you think? We have time to go to the bathroom before the next show? We can't, you old fool. We're pulled into the seats. 